Today, we're going to look at that story of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and we're just going to ask that simple question. What does Jesus change? What does he change with the words that he says? What does he change with the actions he takes on? And this right here, what we call communion, the bread, the body, the the cup, the, the blood, what does Jesus change? Now, probably when you hear the Lord's Supper, this painting right here comes to mind. It's the painting of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And this is a beautiful piece of artwork, an iconic piece in Western history. However, the reality is, although it's a beautiful piece of artwork, it doesn't really depict what happened the night of The Last Supper. Perhaps the scene that I'm going to set for you today will give you a new perspective of what happened that night. First, this image and this picture and painting depicts that it was daylight overlooking the hills of Jerusalem, but the Bible tells us that it was evening. At evening time, this private, secret, intimate meal between Jesus and his disciples. And the reason why it was private and secret is because Jesus has now been in the city of Jerusalem for five days, and he has become the center of controversy. There's people who love him, ready to worship him, but there's another group of people, the religious leaders, who hate him and are already making their plots to put him to death. And so Jesus made this prearranged plan, and he asked two of his closest disciples, Peter and John, to go and find a man in the city of Jerusalem who is carrying a jar of water, to ask him about the Passover, then to follow him to his house and begin to make preparations for the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal is something that has been celebrated by Jewish people ever since their exodus from slavery in Egypt, something Jews actually celebrate still to this day. And this meal was about commemorating and remembering the story of how God freed them from their slavery, how God acted justly against Egypt's injustice. And the Passover meal in the first century, people would have traveled from all over to come to the city of Jerusalem to practice this meal. Now, this meal had set foods that were to be eaten, certain prayers and and questions and answers that were to be recited. And usually a Passover meal would take about four hours to walk through. We don't have that kind of time today, so I'm just going to quickly walk through what that last night might have looked like. All four of the gospel writers tell a part of the story, and we're going to look primarily at Luke and John's account. And we're told that when it came time, when it was evening, it came time for the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples enter that upper room. And they begin to make their way around the table, and as they do, the disciples start arguing with one another. They're arguing about the seating arrangement. Who should be sitting on Jesus' left and who should be sitting on his right? And to all of this, Jesus says, The greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And then what Jesus does next is incredible. In John's account, we're told that he takes on this position of servitude and humility. He gets up from the table, comes and puts, takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, and we're told in John 13, he pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had put around his waist. Now, I, don't, I know that we don't practice this custom of foot washing today. It's kind of strange maybe to you. Probably the closest custom we have to it is that we take off our shoes when we go into someone else's home. But this was a job of humiliation. 
But it was also a necessary job, one that would have likely been done by the household servant or slave. But Jesus doesn't just do this act of humility. He assumes the entire costume. He takes off his outer garment. He puts a towel around his waist. And no doubt the disciples' jaws had to have been dropped as he walked around the table washing their feet. Matter of fact, we're told that when he comes to Peter, Peter says to him, Lord, you should not wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter said, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Peter didn't understand what Jesus was telling him. But Jesus explains himself. Jesus says this in John chapter 13. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. In this humbled disposition, even though he modeled it and taught about it all throughout his life, Jesus has just changed something here for us. This moment in history has become one of great significance for those who follow Jesus because we look back to this moment and realize that life is not about being first. Life is not about making the most money. Life is not about having the biggest home, the newest car, maxing out our 401k. Life is not about being the boss, being famous, climbing up the ladder of success. Life is not about that at all. Rather, life is about a self-denial of self and of self-interest for the benefit of others for the benefit of others. And Jesus, when he washes his disciples' feet, and by the way, it shouldn't be missed that one of the set of feet that Jesus washes is that of his disciple, Judas, who Jesus knows is about to, in just an hour or so, go and hand him over to the religious leaders who are going to put him to death, betray him. And so, Jesus models for us and shows us humility in washing the feet of the disciples. He changes something. He changes the way we should act. And in changing the way we should act, he teaches us to act in humility, to live out a humbled life, to follow his example, servitude, lowering ourselves for the benefit of others. Jesus teaches us humility and washing the feet of the disciples, but he's going to do something even greater in less than 24 hours. He's going to show us the ultimate example of humility when he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that as Christ followers, we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. A humbled disposition. Servitude for the benefit of others. Jesus changes the way we should act. And then after he washes the feet of the disciples, he comes and he reclines at the table. And I said reclines because if there was a table... It would have been very low to the ground. It would have been in a U-shape, and the disciples would have leaned back on couches, leaning on their left elbow, freeing up their right hand to eat. So even the scene I just depicted you with sitting in a chair would have not been realistic or historic. Jesus would have carried that water basin around the table. And so what I'm going to do for you here is I'm going to quickly walk through the Passover meal to the best of my understanding of what it would have looked like that night for Jesus and his disciples. 
Now, modern Passover has a lot of more added elements that likely wouldn't have been a part of the first century Passover. So this is a bit of a stripped down version. Now, the Passover meal was divided into four parts. Each part was signified by the drinking of a cup of wine, unfermented wine, or just simply fruit of the vine. What I have for us here is grape juice. Wonderful, delicious, Welch's grape juice. So we'll start this Passover meal with the first cup. And with each cup would come a blessing that would be sung in Hebrew. So I'm going to sing that in Hebrew, but after that, I want you to read it along with me in English. You'll see the translation appear in English on your screen. The, tra- the blessing goes like this. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech ahalam, Pari hagafen. Everyone in English? May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. Now, typically, the Passover meal would begin with the oldest man telling a part of the story of what God had done with the people of Israel when he freed them from their slavery in Egypt. And I'm just going to read a part of that story for you as we are told in the New Testament. But before that would have happened, Jesus, after taking this cup, After taking this cup, he said something that changed everything, that would have left the disciples shocked. He says this in Luke in chapter 22. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup and gave thanks, what I just did, He said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The reason this would have left the disciples shocked and surprised is because this meal, the Passover, was about the past. It was about God liberating and freeing the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. But but Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is not about the past. This meal is taking on a new significance. This meal is about what is coming through my death and resurrection. It's not about the past. It's about the future. And it's about the kingdom of God that is coming. Now, that phrase, kingdom of God, is something that Jesus talked about all throughout his life. He said that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And by the way, the kingdom of God, it means God's reign and rule that overtakes the world by restoring everything that has gone wrong in our world. And the disciples, Jesus' followers, they would have seen and and heard Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God because they've been following him for the last three years. But when he says this, that the kingdom of God is coming, he won't drink it anew until he finds it in the kingdom of God. He is pointing them to the future and saying that the kingdom of God is moving forward and that his death is the inaugurating point of God's reign coming down here. This, the Passover, is actually about God's kingdom. This meal is no longer about what happened in the past with Israel. It's now taking on a new significance. It's about what is going to happen with God's reign for the entire world. Now, the next thing that would have taken place in the Passover meal would have been what is called the dipping of the carpas. And what I have here is a little bit of parsley. And inside this dish is salty water, very salty water. So I'll do that real quick here and eat this. Pretty salty. Okay. So everything at the Passover meal had a meaning, had, had a purpose of 
why they would eat it. So why the dipping of the carpas? Well, there's all kinds of interpretations, but one of the oldest interpretations has to do with how the people of Israel ended up in slavery in the first place. And that all goes back to the book of Genesis, when Jacob, who was the forefather of the people of Israel, who had 12 sons, but the youngest son, Joseph, were told that he loved him the most, and that only made the rest of the brothers envious and jealous. And so Jacob had actually made this beautiful, ornate, technicolor dream coat for Joseph. And he gave it to him, and that only envied and, and made the brothers even more jealous. And so they made plots to kill him. But instead of killing him, they decided to sell him to merchants who would then take him into Egypt and sell him as a slave. But in order to cover up this whole story and what they had done, they took off that technicolor dream coat, ripped it to pieces, and dipped it inside goat's blood, and then they took it back to their father Jacob. And when their father Jacob saw the whole thing, he thought that his son had died and been eaten alive by ferocious animals. And it was that sad, sorrow, mournful story of when they dipped the coat in blood that led to a series of events of how them ending up in Egypt and ultimately in slavery. Now, at this part of the meal, after the dipping of the carpas, the youngest person around the table would ask a series of questions. Questions like, why is this night different from any other night? Why do we eat only unleavened bread tonight? Why do we eat the bitter herbs tonight? And then the oldest man presiding over the meal would begin to retell a part of the story and answer those questions. And I'm going to read a part of it for you here in Deuteronomy 26. It says, My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of Israel, our, uh, the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This meal was about commemorating that great story. And as they retold the story, they would continue the meal by taking the second cup. And with the second cup in hand, they would sing one of the great psalms of the Old Testament, Psalm 113, known as the Hallel. Now, it sounds beautiful sung in Hebrew, but I didn't memorize that Hebrew singing, so we're all just going to say it together in English. And it was a call and response that would happen and include everyone at the table. And so you're going to see Psalm 113 appear on your screen. And when it says all, you can read along with me at home, and I'm going to take the position of the leader. So let's read Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look onto the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor and the, and from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. The singing of this blessing then would take place. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, habarei I'll say it with me in English. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. 
Now, the main part of an authentic Passover meal needed to include at least three items. Unleavened or bread without yeast, bitter herbs, and roasted lamb. We'll take the unleavened bread or bread without yeast, but first we just need to ask, why? Well, if you've ever made bread before, you know that yeast is that rising agent that allows the, uh, the bread to, to rise and, and become Wonder Bread, like we, what we eat on a regular basis. But if you've ever done that, you know that that takes a long time. It takes hours, in fact. And the people of Israel, the night of the Exodus, they didn't have a long time. They had to be ready to go in an instant with food to eat. Matter of fact, we're told this in the book of Exodus 12, verse 39. It says, With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. So this ancient symbol was about trusting God and to bring about redemption and to rescue them. But Jesus changes something here in his meal. He changes something with this ancient symbol of bread and redemption. Because as they ate the meal, we're told this in Luke in chapter 22. It says that he took the bread. He took the bread and he gave thanks. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech ahalam, lamech aharatz. In other words, may you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world who brings forth bread from the earth. Then it says he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice he doesn't say, This is the bread of our ancestors. No, what does he say? He says, This is my body. He wants his disciples to not remember the past, not the Exodus story, but rather to look forward to the cross. No one has ever said things like this before. Jesus changes what this symbol represents. Bread is a staple for life. Bread means life. It's sustenance. There's a reason why in the grocery stores right now you can only buy so much bread because everyone needs it, right? Bread is a staple for life. And Jesus is saying, this bread, it is my body. And so what he's saying is his death is somehow going to bring about sustenance in life. His death is life. But notice what it says. Notice who it says the life is for. Life for you. Life for you. This is his body broken for you to give you life. And when he says, do this in remembrance of me, although the disciples didn't know it at the time, he was instituting a new practice for his followers that every time they break bread, they remember his body that was broken for them to give us life. Now, the next main part of the meal would have been the bitter herbs, and uh, um, this is going to be kind of brutal here. I don't know if I'm ready for this because what I have here is just lettuce, but inside here is horseradish. And I uh, don't know if you've ever eaten horseradish before, but uh, in order to get through this rest of this thing, um, I'm going to be a little conservative here. But this was called, this bitter herb was called the maror, and it was meant to make you cry when you ate it because its purpose was to help you remember the bitterness that the affliction of the Israelites as they were in slavery in Egypt. Matter of fact, we're told this in Exodus chapter 1. It says, So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Now, that word bitterness here, when it says they made their lives bitter, 
is the Hebrew word marar. Marar is bitter, and so that's why we eat the maror. Made their lives bitter with harsh labor and bricks and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so in order to participate in the bitterness of our ancestors, I'll eat the bitter herbs. Like I said, I need to be conservative here. Oh, that's hot. So, oh, um, I can't prepare for this. Oh, with a little bit of water. Wow, that was hot. Oh, that wasn't even fresh horseradish. That was just creamy. Wow. Okay, here we are. The last part of the meal. I'm already crying here. The last part of the meal was the roasted lamb. Now, why lamb? Well, the night before the exodus from slavery, God brought justice against Egypt's injustice by killing the firstborn. So the night of the Exodus, God sent a spirit through the land of uh, Egypt to kill every firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, I know that if you're hearing this, you're probably thinking to yourself, that is unimaginably intense. And it is. But it was matching Pharaoh's oppressive evil because Pharaoh killed the firstborn of every Israelite. He killed every Israelite boy. And as a last act of poetic justice, God brings about the killing of the firstborn of the Egyptians. But God provided something that Pharaoh never provided, and that was a way of escape, a way out. And that's the symbol of the Lamb. Because the night of the Exodus, anyone, anyone could go and take a one-year-old spotless ewe lamb and slaughter it, and eat it as a part of the Passover meal. But what they would do is they'd take a part of the blood from that lamb, and they would paint it on the doorpost over their home. I have a picture here for you to see so that you can get an idea of what this might have looked like. And this would have served as a symbol that anyone who is in the house where the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost would be spared. It's actually where we get the name of this entire meal. Because the night that the spirit of death came through Egypt, he would pass over, pass over, he'd pass over any house and any person inside the house where the blood was on their doorpost. They would be spared. The blood was covering them. The justice of God would pass over anyone covered by the blood of the lamb. I recognize this is a bit of a strange symbol to us, but that's the story. Somehow through the death of this lamb, God's justice is taken out on what is evil, which, by the way, is right and good. God's justice is taken out on what is evil, but at the same time, he provides a way of escape through the blood of the Lamb. Some think that when Jesus ate this meal with his disciples that he didn't actually have lamb on his plate. Now, there's no real way of knowing that. It's merely speculating, but either way, I want you to know that after they had finished the meal— they're wrapping it up. After they had eaten the lamb, or if they didn't have the lamb, either way, it doesn't matter. Jesus takes the third cup, and I want you to hear what he says. He says, it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he's about to connect the cup to the lamb. He took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit 
of the vine. Notice what Jesus has done. No one has ever said or done things like this before. He is taking the most ancient symbols of Judaism and giving them new meaning and significance. He's tying them to his death and to a new covenant. The word covenant means promise. And God has made promises and covenants all throughout the scripture in moments and in movements to show his plan of bringing out redemption for the world. He starts with a promise to Abraham that he would bless him and all nations on earth would be blessed through him. He makes a covenant and promise with the people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. He makes a covenant with King David. He makes these covenants to show that he's at work and that he is bringing about redemption for the world. But Jesus, in this last meal with the disciples, changes these symbols to indicate that tonight, his death, a new covenant is going to take place. Through the breaking of his body on the cross, through the pouring out of his blood, a new exodus is about to happen. He is the Passover lamb, and his suffering will provide redemption, not just for one nation and people, but for every nation and every peoples. Now, you can think of the story of the Exodus as taking place in three parts. Part one is, through the Lamb, God rescues the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. But in this Last Supper with his disciples, and more importantly, in what he's about to do on the cross, Jesus takes these ancient symbols and this ancient story and tradition of the Passover and changes it. So it's no longer through the Lamb, but it is through Jesus that God rescues the world from slavery to the powers of sin and death. Jesus, in that night, doesn't just change the meal. It doesn't just change a tradition. He doesn't just change what these foods represent. Yes, he takes some of the fundamental elements of traditional Judaism and gives them new significance, but he is doing so much more. Jesus changes the covenant. He changes the promise. He points us to his death as God moving forward with his plan to bring about redemption and justice and liberation, freeing all of humanity from the slavery to the powers of sin and death by establishing a new covenant in his blood. Jesus changes our relationship with God. And because of that, because Jesus changes our relationship with God, we have this transcendent truth. Jesus establishes a new covenant. His body being broken, his blood being poured out, inaugurates the reign of God moving forward and coming to the lives of individuals all throughout the world and all throughout history to bring about death, and to bring about life from that which was dead, to bring about restoration from that which was destroyed, to bring about healing from that which was sick, to bring about truth from that which was a lie. God, through Jesus, rescues all of humanity from the slavery to the powers of sin and death. And what is happening in our world right now is only the result of the powers of sin and death. And right now, life can seem hopeless and fearful and frightening as if this thing will never 
end, that we'll be in this crisis forever. But that ancient story, that transcendent story, the new covenant established at the cross tells us that God has the power over the slavery to sin and death. Wherever you are in life, if you're wondering what in the world is going on and how would an all-loving and powerful God allow this to happen in our world right now, let me offer to you these words of theologian N.T. Wright, and I think it's a very biblical perspective. He says, what the gospel offers is not a philosophical explanation of evil, what it is or why it's there, nor a set of suggestions for how we might adjust our lifestyles so that evil will mysteriously disappear from the world. The gospel offers the story of an event in which the living God deals with it. The gospel, the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus offers us the story of the living God who has dealt with evil. You can have hope anchored in these emblems because of what they represent. The body of Christ broken to give you life. The blood of Christ poured out for you to establish a covenant where God would bring about redemption, where he shows his power over sin and death. Paul in the New Testament, he tells us in this, 1 Thessalonians, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then he goes on to say that whatever happens in this world, even once this world comes to an end, we believe that we will be with the Lord forever. That is the transcendent truth for our time. But it's a transcendent truth, so it's not just for our time. Whatever is happening right now, down in the ditch that we're in, whatever it is, a a pandemic, persecution, depression, whether it's job loss, whether it's addiction, whether it's war, whether it's strife, whatever it is, because Jesus died and rose again, we can have confidence anchored in the story of Jesus and his death on the cross when the living God dealt with evil once and for all. And we can look towards that beautiful day when he will make all things new again, bring about a restoration of all of creation. And this transcendent truth, this hope, it is available to everyone. It's available to you, and that's the beautiful story of the Bible, is that Jesus says that he wants you at the table. Matter of fact, we're told this in the book of Revelation. It says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and that person and they with me. Jesus changes our, who is welcome at his table. Jesus changes who is welcome at his table. He's opening up to anyone. He's opening up to you. Just think of who was there the last night with his, uh, last night of his disciples. They were the ones sitting around his table. And the disciples, it wasn't like they were the lead of society. No, they were everyday people, and some of them were actually hated by the community. Furthermore, the people people that Jesus hung out with throughout his life were labeled as unclean and sinners, outcasts. Jesus is welcoming everyone at his table, and he is welcoming you. But he's not going to force himself in. It's an invitation. 
You have to open the door. He desires to dine with you. He desires to be with you for you to have that transcendent truth and hope. But you have to accept the invitation. And the Bible tells us that it is through faith, trusting in Jesus. That it is through confession or saying out loud with our mouth that he is Lord. It is through repentance or turning away from our sin. It's through immersion in water, what the Bible calls baptism, that we can begin this life-changing relationship with Jesus where we can have that truth and that transcendent hope and also we can be participators in that new promise, that new covenant that God made at the cross that tells us that one day everything will be made right because God has the power over sin and death. You can participate in that by opening the door and allowing Jesus in. We're going to end our time today in a time of communion where we participate in this meal. Now, I said the Passover is marked by four cups, and I didn't drink the fourth cup, but we're going to drink it here together. Now, this would be a great time for you to take whatever supplies you have at home that most closely resembles the bread and the cup. But this time of communion is something the church has been celebrating for the last 2,000 years. And these things are only symbols. It's not some mystical incarnation of Jesus. No, no, no. This is about remembering Jesus and remembering what he has done. Matter of fact, Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us instruction about this whole thing. And he tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This time right now of communion is about a proclamation. We participate in this meal to remember the death of Jesus, that his body was broken for us to bring us sustaining life, that his blood was poured out to establish an everlasting covenant that shows us that God has the power over sin and death. This is a proclamation. We look back on those events, the cross, and know that one day God will make everything right. We do this week after week to proclaim that until he comes again, until everything is made right. And so we're going to follow through Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's give thanks for the bread. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth sustenance in life through the body of your Son, Jesus. We give you thanks for Jesus and for his death that we can have sustaining life, that he is our Passover lamb that brings about redemption and restoration. We remember you during this time. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To the best of your ability, break your bread and let's take and eat, remembering the body of Christ broken for you to give you life. Paul goes on to say, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, 
who creates a new covenant established by the blood, the pouring out of your son's blood on the cross that gives us hope, transcendent hope, that he is our Passover lamb, that on the cross you dealt justly with sin and death and you passed over our sins. He is our sacrificial Passover lamb, and we give you thanks. We remember that event. We remember what he has done, and we remember that we are contributors contributors to the evil of this world, but you've dealt with it, and you've put it to death, and you've shown us your power over it. We give you thanks. Let's take and drink, remembering the blood of Christ poured out that established a new covenant. Amen. We have hope. Transcendent hope. This isn't just a story. This isn't just an ancient text. And these are not just meaningless symbols. This is real life change. And when we understand who Jesus is and what he has changed, and we have a right relationship with him, It gives us this new power, this new ability to walk through life, not with our head down as if all is hopeless and all is lost, but rather with our head high, pressing on toward the heavenward call of God. And because the cross has won the victory, it means that as a redeemed people of God, we are living in that new kingdom, God's kingdom, bringing his reign and rule. It is in our lives and we're bringing about in his world by humbling ourselves to serve others. So I want to encourage you to live in hope this week as if Jesus changes everything because he does. He does. We're going to end our time by singing this last song, and I encourage you, you can stand up or sit down, whatever you feel most comfortable, but this time is about proclaiming the never-ending, never-failing love of God that moved him to establish that new covenant. Let's sing.